Q&A. So this is uh, Biblical Counseling Issues, and we are on our second week of Q&A here. And I want to um, just uh, try to address some of the questions that came in and to see if we can't think through those. Um, So one of the questions was, uh, other than how are you, what questions can be asked to ascertain one's spiritual health? I kind of like this question because it's very common in our society to be very trite in our greeting. Like, isn't it true that oftentimes, and and we're guilty of this and others are too, that we'll say, how are you? But we really don't want to know. You know, we'll say, how are you? And people will say, fine. Oh, that's good. You know, we expect just kind of a a fine answer and, you know, we're on our way. And and, uh, so that... uh, that may work on some occasions, but when we're trying to ascertain the spiritual uh, pulse or health of an individual, I think we certainly need to ask questions that are more directed than that. And I'm just going to share with you some of the questions that I ask, and I don't think this is a right or wrong answer, and you can add your own if you'd like, but just some of the things over the years in ministry that I have found helpful when I'm trying to sit down in discipleship or dealing with a brother or sister who's hurting. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the main questions is to ask, you know, what is the Lord doing in your life? And, you know, this sounds very generic, I realize, but the importance of that question is, is it gets an individual thinking about uh, how conscious have I been of God over the last month or whatever of my life? How much have I really thought about what the Lord's doing? Like sometimes I'll hear this, I don't know. Well, that tells me right away that he's probably not developing much of a spiritual life, that there's probably not uh, too much regard for the word or obedience. So that might be a key to say, hey, we need to start there and we really need to to look into what, what is happening. What's the Lord doing in your life? Or what are you struggling with? You know, that's another thing that we can... And here again, typically when people are honest about that, um, you know, it's because they want help. Um, if, if someone says, well, nothing really, you know, usually there's more to it than just that. Another thing I might want to ask them is, what are you reading lately? Um, not only in scripture, but what are you reading? One of the things in ministry that has to happen is, if you're going to preach, you're, if you're going to be in ministry, you have to read. I, I am not a very fast reader. I'm a very slow reader. Anybody else have that problem? I'm very embarrassed to say this, but all through my grammar school years, you know, we had reading uh, groups in our school. There was a one, two, and three group, and the one were the speed readers, the two were the average, and the three were the slow pokes. And I was always in group three, and near the end of group three. Um, I've always been frustrated that I've been a very slow reader, but I love to read. Uh, so it, I get there eventually. It just takes me longer than most people. My dad was a, I really believe my dad bordered on genius when it came to reading. He could read a novel in about two nights and retain everything. And I don't know how he did it. I mean, he just could read like nobody I've ever seen in my life and retain it. Where I would have to read a paragraph and think about it for an hour uh, to get it. So I obviously didn't get those genes. But what are you reading Reading is uh, a good, obviously the scripture is the most important thing. We, we cannot expect um, to have spiritual health if we're not in the word. 
The word is not the kind of a thing where we read it once and then it just sticks forever. Like you could read Moby Dick for you know three or four times and you probably would stick it. You're like, okay, I got it, I got it, I get the story. And you would get the story. But the Bible is not like that. The Bible is inexhaustive. That's why no matter how many times we were to preach through a book, there'd be something new to find every single time. You can't ever get to the bottom. I think it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, if you could ever, if any theologian could just master one book of the Bible, he would do more than any theologian that ever lived. You, you can't master the Word of God. It's like golf. You just never quite get there. Um, the Bible is inexhaustible. But what are you reading? We need to keep reading. Um, another question I always want to ask is, tell me about your church life. Are you serving? You know, if I get someone who proclaims to be a Christian, and then they say, well, I don't go to church, or I'm not serving, or I'm just, you know, I'm not really part of body life, I'm not really plugged in, I really don't know anybody, I'm not in fellowship, I don't, you know, make that a priority, they're going to have problems. God never designed us to live in a vacuum. We are absolutely, as believers, wired with a regenerated heart to be dependent upon one another. Our spiritual gifts are useless and worthless and of no value if we're not using them for the edification of the body and to the glory of God. What good are they? So we must understand the importance of body life. So I can tell you that when a believer or a couple or a family isolates themselves from the church, there's going to be big trouble. They will not be able to maintain and sustain any kind of healthy uh, spiritual life, even in their personal lives. We have got to be with one another. And that goes from pastors on down. Um, you know, a lot of people have this misnomer that pastors kind of walk on water, that we don't really need to be. That, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm energized on Sundays. Sundays are my days to be with the fellowship. This is my favorite day of the week, even though it's a work day for me. And it is a work day. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't believe that, you should see what I look like on Monday morning. Um, I come in and I just stare at the wall. Uh, Karine will tell you, she's here. Um, but it is my favorite day because I get to be with the body. And I need that encouragement. I need the fellowship and the uh, the benefits of all the gifts that God has given you because none of us have all of them. And, you know, you feed into my life as much, if not more, I hope, than I feed into yours. So very important. You know, I draw strength from the gifts and the abilities that you have and that you bring to the church, and that's the way it should be. So, again, asking, uh, we're, we're talking about the question, uh, this is a Q&A, other than how are you, um, what questions can be asked to ascertain one's spiritual health? And we've talked about what is the Lord doing in your life to put into a person's mind, you know, how am I relating to the Lord? Uh, what are your struggles? What are you reading? Talking about their church life. Um, uh, and are they serving? And again, depending on their answers, depends upon where we might want to go in a conversation with them. Um, and another thing that um, I think is very important, we don't often ask this question, is how are you changing? Um, what's different in you from, say, a year ago in the faith? You know, I would hope that all of us would ask ourselves that question once in a while. 
our Christian life, if it is a walk of sanctification, then we should not be the same people today that we were a year ago. We should be having learned new things. We should be at a little greater level of maturity. We should be a little more discerning. Uh, Hopefully we're developing spiritual gifts. Um, And sometimes we grow in periods of our life a little slower than other times. Sometimes we get those great spurts of spiritual growth that really happen. Um, But you know, it's interesting. I look back at my early years of ministry, and not only am I horrified, I'm almost embarrassed for where I was then, compared to where I am now. And maybe if God gave me another 20 years, I'd be saying the same thing like, Boy, you should have seen me back in 2017. That was awful. Uh, But anyway, just that we're growing in our faith, that we're constantly challenging ourselves. And in biblical counseling, remember, the way this relates is counseling is all about change. I get very frustrated and usually try to terminate counseling if I don't see change. Because if there's no change, it's telling me I'm either working with somebody who doesn't want to change, who has a hard heart, or they... um, or they don't understand their need to change. We have to change. And when God does the change, again, it's not huffing and puffing to change. It's uh, changing because of what God is doing in our lives. And our life is, as the Bible says, a walk of progressive sanctification. And we will never have to worry that we're going to run out of uh, room to grow. All right? Um, Any of you that might be worried that, well, if I mature too fast, then, you know, I'm going to be done and I'll just be in a holding pattern. Trust me on this one. You're never going to get there. Um, There's always going to be another mile and a a million more past that to grow. Yes? I don't know if this is an appropriate time to ask a question. That's all right. Go ahead and ask. Um, I know someone who is personal. Who is? Sorry, is a relative of me. A relative, okay. Yeah. How do they deal well, that's a great question. And I go through a series called When Counseling Fails. And there are a series of very important questions that you need to ask as to ascertaining why did it fail. Why isn't it moving forward? Yeah. And um, so, you know, you really want to talk about that, you know. Um, and I can give you some things that might help you uh, with that particular thing. But because that's not normal for a Christian. That's not Now, I understand that we all struggle with things, and typically, in reality, the way change occurs is we change, we may have a setback, but the obvious thing is we're keeping going. You know, it's not that we're perfect, but that, you know, there may be slip-ups, and we may slide a little bit, but we're continuing to try to move in the right direction. Um, But if it's just like we're plateauing or going down, then that's something that really ought to be addressed. So those are just some of the um, things. Anybody else want to add to that or make any comments on spiritual change, like anything you have? Like I said, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer to this. Those are just some of the things that through my years of ministry I found helpful when um, we want to find out how are you doing spiritually? How is somebody doing? How do you feel your walk with Christ is going? Also, oh, go ahead, Josh. Sorry. No. Also, like, I know another like, big thing um, for me, like, Mm-hmm. Christ is um, like the continuous like recognition of, of like new sin 
Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's, it's, <laughs> That's it's a bummer, isn't it? Yeah. And, and growing spiritually in that way, but a recognition like of ongoing, like an ongoing battle of sin. Like, okay, I've, you know, like, like Christ has defeated this sin in my life, but now I have this, and, and it's it's a constant struggle. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That's a, a great comment because the longer you're a Christian, the more horrifying sin becomes, and the more you realize how much sin you have in your life. Um, as a pastor, like I, I just think sometimes I, I wonder why God even lets me take another breath. I mean, you ever had those days where it's just like, I, I don't even know. I mean, if I'm God looking at me, I'm thinking. Um, and again, I don't want to be trite about this or corny about it, but that's a healthy thing because you realize, when you begin to realize the holiness of God, when you begin to realize, you know, the uh, perfections of God and the attributes of God, and then you begin to realize your sin, and then you begin to realize the grace of that God towards you. That's an overwhelming thing. In fact, we're going to talk about that today. We're parking on purity today in the, in the message. Um, I'm not going past two more verses because this is something that just church, all of us really need to hear. Uh, but, you know, what, what motivates us to, to obey the Lord? It's just understanding His His overwhelming holiness and grace extended to us. And when you're overwhelmed by the love of God as beloved children, as overwhelmed by his love, that really motivates you to understand your own sin and to want to obey and to be aware of it. Okay, so let me go to another question, unless there's any other comments on that. I don't want to rush you. Okay. Um, Another question I got was this. Who is qualified to practice biblical counseling? And I would like you to turn to Romans 15, 14 in your Bibles. And, and the Apostle Paul is going to answer that question for you very directly. Romans 15. Um, who is qualified to do biblical counseling? Uh, who is qualified to practice counseling? Now, I don't know. I don't know. That, I could take that question a couple ways, but let's... Uh, Let's start with the general, and then maybe if there's questions, we'll move to the specific. Okay, so the passage is Romans 15, 14. And will someone read that for us, please? As my brand new Bible, I'm opening this to this page for the very first time. Yes, okay. Who wants to read? Okay, uh, Rachel, go ahead. I myself am satisfied about you, my brother. Okay, so who's qualified to do biblical counseling? The one and others, right? This is another, all of us. Um, and this is, again, one of the great fallacies of secular counseling is that, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that they all always want to turn you to the professional, you know. Um, listen, if we know the Word of God, we're able to counsel. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, you're able to counsel. Does it mean you know all the answers? No. If you don't know an answer, then tell them you don't know an answer, and you'll look it up and get back to them. But we all have with us the Word of God. We're able to admonish one another. And notice that Paul says, You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish. Those are the things that it takes to be able to counsel. 
Now, I realize that, like anything else, to get good at anything, it takes practice, right? I mean, we have to practice. So, you know, you may feel intimidated, like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm in this situation, I really... That's okay. Uh, you may have to put training wheels on your Bible for a little while, you know, and, and counsel people, and maybe you're... But, you know, as you do it more and more, you become more and more competent. And as you think through biblical principles as far as what you're, um, what you're dealing with, then you become actually more and more competent. The only difference in counseling between me, and I counsel all the time, and you, who maybe you don't counsel as much as, maybe I've been in the Word a little longer than you, and I've been doing it longer than you. That's the only difference. In fact, let me say this. I much prefer, if it's a good situation, to have another church member counsel another church member before they come in to me to get counsel. That is far better. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you all counseling someone in our church competently can be more effective than me counseling them? One part of the answer would be that your role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay. So you're not called to counsel everybody. That's true. That's a good aspect of it, Norm. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, yeah. the CEO of a company. He's not supposed to do all the work, but he's got managers right. and so on. So exactly. You, you duplicate yourself. Yeah, that's a good angle. I hadn't thought about that, but that's very true. I mean, the goal is to teach others. It's that Second Timothy 2 2 principle, but in ministry, that's exactly right. We're exhorted in. Um, in uh, Ephesians to uh, train others to do the work of the ministry as we saw in, in chapter 4. What else? Why else might it be more effective for you to do it? 2 Timothy 2-2. Two, two. Go ahead. Um, I was going to say, I think people are in, sometimes intimidated by True. pastors and so they won't be themselves around the pastor. Oh man, that, yeah. that is so true. You know, that is so true, and that's a huge reason. People are going to open up to you more than they're going to open up to me. I just had a woman in my office this week. It has been many years since I saw anybody come into my office with more fear and trepidation than this, than this woman. And I felt my heart went out to her because she was literally trembling. You know, we, I didn't know her well. And you can understand that, you know, coming in, and, and she was just so, and we, we calmed things down, and, you know, we got a good rapport, and at the end, she was very um, more relaxed. But, you know, there's a rapport um, between members of a congregation that is not there with a pastor, you know, and, and sometimes it's frustrating. Um, like, if somebody comes and wants to talk to me about something personal, and they don't know me, and they ask me what I do, I usually say I'm a social worker. <laughs> now, I'm not lying. <laughs> because what happens is, the minute I say that I'm a pastor, <laughs> there's a little bit of a wall that goes up, and they feel there has to be this formality, and, you know. And, of course, as a pastor, you have to be having the tensile strength as a leader to be able to admonish, or in, in different kinds of ways. But... Um, it is often far more effective for you to talk to people because they are more comfortable, they're willing to open up. And, um, and again, it doesn't mean that every time there's a problem, you have to run to a pastor. Um, and I think this is shown in Scripture in one area, in Matthew 18, when we're talking, for example, about church discipline, which is perhaps the severest form of counseling that needs to be done, right? 
But even there, what is the first step in church discipline? When we see a brother or sister who's in sin, what, what are we to do? Are we to run to the pastor and say, hey, uh, yes. what are we to do? We're to, you're to go to your brother. And if you can resolve it there, it doesn't need to go anywhere. So, for example, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, this guy really offended me, and, you know, he was doing this, and, you know, you need to talk to him, what do you think I'm going to say? Did you talk to him? And if the answer is no, start there, don't come here. You know, I'm not going to bypass the, you know. And if you can settle it there, great. Now, if you can't settle it there, then God gives us ways, right? Then we take two or more witnesses. Does that have to be a pastor, yes or no? I prefer it not to be. Seriously. So take two or more and go to that individual. Now, if they don't listen there, does it need to come to us? Yes. We will bring resolution one way or another. But that's not where we start. So I would always encourage you guys, you know, if you can settle it on that level, um, that's always the best place to start. Okay. Um, so that's, you know, again, Competent to Counsel, a great book by Jay Adams, should give you great encouragement, and don't ever be t intimidated about doing that. Okay. The next question that I got was this. What is the role of psychology in counseling? Who asked me this question? <laughs> um, basically, um, I would have to say, Nothing, really. Now, let me explain this. There are many psychological principles that parallel biblical truth. I want to say right up front that there are many secular counselors, whether they be psychiatrists or psychologists or secular counselors, who desire to do good to people. Okay, so please don't hear me saying we hate these people, they're terrible, they're with, they're, no, they're not. Uh, they, they're very loving people, and for the most part, they genuinely want to help people. So we have to be very careful not to label uh, people in, in the wrong way. What I'm talking about here is not, not the people, and not even so much the methodology that they use, which can be very good at times, but I'm talking more about the theology. I want to talk about the theology between psychology and biblical counseling. Does that make sense? And this is where we have a problem. And the problem is this, that all of your secular psychological principles that we see in most of your counseling today are based upon um, humanistic philosophies. So, for example, when you look at um, Sigmund Freud, okay, what did, what did Freud say, basically? Anybody know Freudian psychology? Anybody study that at all? Is that the ego id? Yeah, the ego id and superego that basically they would say that, you know, the, Freud would say this, the, the problem with man is, is that, you know, He's got, he's got this id, the way things are, and then he's got an ego, and the ego and the id fight against each other. In other words, what society tells a person 
he or she has to do and what that person may want to do are always clashing. So the way to get a person right with himself or herself is to get rid of all the barriers of society and so that a person can do what he wants. Um, and so it promotes the superego where you know the ego takes over and you begin to, to live the way you want. So Freud would lay people down on the couch and he would go back into the deep dark past and he would do what was called psychoanalysis and he would see where all the pain and the suffering was and then he would help people to feel better about themselves and they would move on. Um, I'll get to my point in a minute. Then you get a guy like Rogers, okay? Rogerian psychology basically um, was behavioral, okay? So basically his idea was you know, you can, uh, you can train a dog, a human, like you train a dog, right? Like, we're, we're, we're programmed to behave certain ways. Like, you can teach a dog to sit, you can teach a dog to roll over, you know, obey commands. And so basically, his idea was this, that in society, we've been taught to obey commands a certain way, and we have to change behavior by the way one thinks. So we have to be able to learn how to respond to external stimuli different than what, um, what we were taught. And here again, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Um, so you have that philosophy. And then, um, I forgot the other one I wanted to bring up. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. Let's see, who else was I going to bring up? Um, and then Skinner. Yeah, Skinner. Who kind of went along with the same thing. And he said, basically... Um, you know, the, the, the idea of man and the way we need to get right is that um, we need to be able to open our inner selves like a flower, Skinner said, so that we learn how to be good to ourselves. You know the philosophy out there that we've got to be good to ourselves, we've got to forgive ourselves, which is totally unbiblical. You can't forgive yourself. Only God can forgive you. Um, it's like we forgive ourselves, we're going to feel good about ourselves. And basically, that's how we get to a good state of mind and heart, is that when we can, when we can ease up on ourselves, we're going to do better. Now, the problem, the fatal flaw with all of those methods, and all of your main psychology um, counseling is done off of some of these things, not exactly the same way, but the fatal flaw is, and this is the fatal flaw, why it'll never work, is because each system assumes that man is inherently good. And that all you have to do is you have to just do some remodeling. Okay? So all of those systems are basically saying man in and of himself has enough capability, enough righteousness, enough goodness to be able to kind of be the captain of his own ship and just get it right again. This is a huge problem because this plays into a lot of the Arminian thinking when it comes to soteriology. Because remember, in Arminian soteriology, basically they say that, you know, God did his part on the cross, right? And we have free will to kind of do our part. So Jesus died on the cross and said, hey, I did my part, you know, for God so loved the world, you know, and all of you... you know, and then we have to do our part, and then when we do our part, and Jesus did his part, boom, we're saved. The problem with that is, again, what is it, why is that heresy? Because it assumes that there is some inherent goodness in man. And the Bible teaches just the opposite. And the difference between those philosophical 
methodologies in a theological sense is that we see in a theological sense that man is totally depraved and without Christ is totally and utterly incapable of any righteousness before a holy God. And so, and I'll get to your question in a minute, and so, that's why if we are counseling someone who is an unbeliever, what's the first job we have? Evangelism. evangelism. The first counseling challenge is evangelism. Because if God has truly blinded the eyes of the unsaved, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, then to give them biblical truth, it's going to roll off of them like water off a duck's back. Because the lost cannot spiritually discern the word of God. So then our first issue becomes, we have to be concerned with the heart. Everything's a heart issue. And until God regenerates a heart, we're wasting our time. I don't counsel unbelievers in that sense. I evangelize unbelievers through counseling. Does that make sense? Okay, you had a question, Pete? I was going to say, Jack, a lot of those models also imply that man is not responsible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're not responsible for what... Oh, man, that is so true. Every single one. Freud, Skinner, yeah, um, Rogers, all will say man is not responsible for his actions. You know, you can't help it. This was imposed upon you. It's your environment's fault. It's your upbringing fault. It's this or that. Um, and so you're not responsible. And again, biblical theology says just the opposite. We are culpable before a righteous and holy God. Right? And Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, which implies those not in Christ Jesus are under condemnation, right? So there is a huge difference theologically. And this is where, you know, here again, I'm not out on a vendetta against, you know, there, there are many. But for example, I, I dealt with a couple recently that came in for counseling. They came in for marital counseling, very serious issues. They had been to a Christian counselor who told them, you know, you're not getting along. You should get a divorce. You know, I hear this all the time, and it just incenses me. And I said, why? what was the motivation for this counselor telling me you should get a divorce? Well, because we don't get along. You know, we wouldn't pass a personality test. Now, if you can find that in Scripture for me, okay? But see, this is the kind of thinking that goes on. See, the Bible is bypassed. And as soon as we start mixing the Word of God with humanistic thinking, we're done. If we believe that the Bible is the final authority for faith and life, then I submit that there is nothing that can't be addressed in the Bible. The Bible addresses everything. I've never, in all my years of counseling, ever come to one thing and said, man, I think the Scripture's silent. I, I just don't know how I can help these people. Never. I will tell you this. I went to a university in my undergraduate work when I was taught the integrated approach. And again, the integrated approach, which is more of the psychological, when what they do in the integrated approach, they take the Bible, some of its truth, they take psychological principles and some of their teaching, and they mix it all together, and they counsel. And I was scared to death. When I got out of school and I started my counseling, I was scared to death to counsel anybody because I had no confidence that I knew what I was doing. And I thought, you know, I'm dealing with people's lives here. I could really mess somebody up. And I didn't have the confidence that I really knew what I was doing. And had I not been introduced to Nuthetic Counseling, I probably would have been one in a long line of pastors who would have said, go to the professional. And how wrong that is. And I'm very thankful to the Lord that, you know, I was able to have my eyes open to, wait a minute here, what do you, you know, 
you've got the word. And, you know, biblical counseling, listen, biblical counseling is not some ethereal, weird system, okay? Biblical counseling, nuthetic counseling is just learning how to use the Bible to teach people. It's biblical counseling. It's a methodology, okay? It's not some kind of system. It's just a methodology of how to use the Bible most effectively in helping people with whatever issues they're dealing with. So there's no mystery to it. And that's why Paul says we're all able to do that. I mean, you know, what do we know about a lot of things scripturally? You know, what do we know about forgiveness? Could, could any of us help? If, if someone came and said, you know, I'm really struggling with forgiveness. How, well, how, how does God look at this? I'm sure everyone in this room, to some extent, could give biblical truth on forgiveness. You can sit down with a brother or sister and say, okay, let's talk about this. You know, what, what does biblical forgiveness look like? Now, maybe you don't know everything, but that's a good impetus then to, to learn. Go and find out. Like when Ryan said, play D over A, I had to look it up. You know, it's just like, I want to see what this is. You know, I mean, so, because I'm curious and I want to learn. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what that is. That's what we need to do. Um, and that happens to me a lot in music, so, you know. Because I'm challenged mightily. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> yes, I'm done. I'm just rambling. So you're saying for a non-believer, counseling a non-believer, the only way to counsel them is to evangelize. Absolutely. There's no other way to help them. Well, you, you know, yes and no. Yes, your primary task is to evangelize. You can't get in, into any real biblical truth, but you can be an encourager. And, you know, we have to be discerning enough to present the gospel in a palatable way, caring about them and loving them and jumping in with them. You know, I have seen counselors who will discern early on in the counseling that you're dealing with an unbeliever. They'll be like, well, you need Christ, and I can help you until you come to Christ. So here's the gospel. Now, what do you think the odds are that that person's going to go, oh, you know, that's going to be a big turnoff. Yeah. And they're going to walk away thinking, well, you're just arrogant. And, you know, we have to love people enough. We've got to bleed for them when we evangelize. Right. You know, there have been unbelievers that have come in very upset. I just give them a hug. I'll just stand there with them and just not say a word and say, I know how much you're hurting. I know how much this really has got to be terrible. I can sympathize with an unbeliever all day long, and we should. Sin is a horrible thing. But, you know, we want to love them enough and then sit down with them to give them the gospel and to say, you know, and I tell people after a while that, now Jay Adams is a lot less <coughs> forgiving than I would be. Jay Adams, when I learned this early on, anybody ever meet Jay Adams? You probably have never met Jay Adams. Woo. Um, kind of the founder of Nank, but he um, says if after a time or two they don't come to Christ, just cut them loose. You know, and that's it. Well, in a, in, a, in a session or two, just cut them loose. I'm not quite that, I, I'm not quite in agreement with that. Um, and the way I feel is this. As long as a person is willing to come in and genuinely dialogue with me over the gospel, I'm going to hang in there with them. If they're coming in just to play me, or to challenge me, like, oh, you think, then I cut them loose. But if somebody really, you know, I'm struggling with this, I know what you said, and I just don't understand how Christ could have... I'm going to strive with them all day long. Because you know what? I can't just turn somebody away. If they come in, and I've had this too, where they're kind of playing it, you know, it's like they have no intention of putting faith in Christ, then I'll just say, you know what? This is probably not 
for either one of our time commitments. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or wipe the dust off your feet. If they're not interested and they really don't want to hear, you know, um, then I don't continue it. But if they're interested and they're willing to learn, I'm going to talk with them all day long, you know, because the salvation of their souls is the most important thing. And, and you are counseling by giving them the gospel and by going through scripture with them. Okay, so... Um, there's a book out. Uh, I would encourage you to get this book if you really want to know about this subject. It's called Banquet in the Grave. And I can't remember who it's by. I had a copy in my library and somebody told David it. Wells. David Wells. Did anybody ever um, take that out of my library? <laughs> I'm missing like a third of my library. Brian, I think you. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's called A Banquet in the Grave, and it is a comparison of secular psychological principles with biblical truth, and it's a great book. Very well written, and I think that'll help you. Again, I'm not on a vendetta here. I work with Christian counselors, and you know they're they're sincere people, and and you know I never want to be uh, disrespectful or rude because there are many people out there in in the mental health field and that are really genuinely trying to help people. And here's another thing: um, when it comes to uh, psychiatrists, which basically are psychologists with an MD. I try to be very respectful and very careful not to presume that I know whether or not there might be a medical issue. I'm not a doctor and I don't play one and we shouldn't either. It, you know, there are many times that behavior is affected by genuine medical problems. And the first thing that I do, if I suspect somebody has got really a problem, I'm going to ask them to go to a physical, a complete physical from a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I love doctors. I have nothing against doctors. They do uh, what they need to do. And if it's a medical issue, I want them to take care of it. Um, and that's not for me to discern. Uh, when it comes to behavioral issues outside of the realm of any type of medical issue that may need medication or, or medical treatment, then we can deal with that. So don't play doctor. Uh, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. Um, the book you were talking about is Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Yes, Addictions. Edward Welsh. Edward Welsh, that's it. Yeah, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Yeah, that one, but there's another one too, though. Um, I, I'm going to find out. I'll, I'll get it for you and let you know. Uh, that's, that's one of the books I'm thinking of. Um, but it's not the one I think... Uh, you're talking about on addictions. I'm not talking about addictions. I'm talking about the comparison between... Um, psychology and biblical counseling. So any questions or comments on that? Anybody want to? I just want to say it's very helpful. Yeah. Um, again, please don't leave here on a vendetta, you know. Um, but the experience I've had through the years is there are many counselors that even call themselves Christian counselors that are giving just devastating and ungodly advice to people. And, you know, I've seen marriages destroyed because the Bible isn't used. Um, and that's, that's heartbreaking. All right, so um, the other question that I got um, is, I got actually three questions on pride. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Dealing with pride and how to respond in love when Another person is struggling. 
Um, and I'm assuming without responding pridefully, and then confronting pride against ourselves. Oh, confronting pride against ourselves and others. So, um, anyway, pride, you know, is certainly... I did a sermon years ago called Seeing the Eye in Pride. (laughs) I can't remember where... I think it was in Daniel. I was preaching in Daniel through the book of Daniel. And uh, anyway... Um, pride is one of the tougher issues personally to overcome. Would you all agree with that? You know, that's something we all battle pretty much every day. Well, it is. You know, pride goes before the fall, we read, and, you know, pride was the sin that caused Satan to fail. Remember in Isaiah 14 where where Satan said, and I will be like the Most High, and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly, and I will be over the mountains, you know, in the hills. And so when we start saying I instead of thy, that's where we get into trouble. And um, basically, pride is a mindset of self, okay? It's a focus on self. If you really want to get to the heart issue of pride, it's a focus on self on serving self, pursuing self-recognition, self-exaltation, a desire to control, and to use all things for self. Me, myself, and I are the three favorite people of a prideful person. And, um, and, you know, it's easy to sit here and we would all agree, amen, yes, that's right, but, you know, we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. And, um, you know, one of the garments of our fleshly residual nature that hangs on us as MacArthur said is this is this sin of pride you know we have to battle that all the time because it's not natural for us to put others ahead of self you know when the Bible says esteem others higher than yourself that's easy to say easy to understand really tough to do at times because we take care of self before we take care of others and that's our natural kind of thing we know that God hates pride. Will someone turn to Proverbs 6 and read 16 through 19 just real quickly? Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Somebody else, uh, Proverbs 16, 5. Somebody else, Proverbs 16, 18. And someone else, James 4, 6. Let me read those again. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Proverbs 16, 5. Proverbs 16, 18. And James 4, 6. Who's got... Proverbs 16 through 19, verse chapter 6. Go ahead. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Okay, so we see pride all over that. Um... God hates that, Um, you know, and those things are all born out of a desire to promote self and degrade others. Pride is also an abomination to God. He's going to punish it. Proverbs 16.5, anybody have that? Okay, go ahead. Yes. Okay, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to God. Man, that... That's a tough verse to swallow, isn't it? Can you uh, please repeat the uh, references? Yes. And that that reference was Proverbs 16.5. And the first one was? Was Proverbs 6. 
verses 16 through 19. Pride, literally, Solomon says, is an abomination before God. And, um, And what makes pride so much more weighty than many other sins? Say for a believer, okay? We know all sin is worthy of condemnation. So I don't want to make it sound like um, all sin doesn't have serious ramifications. But for the believer, there are some sins that are more serious than others. And God clearly outlined. And pride is one of them. Why would that be the case? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Why would pride be... They're allowing their sin to sort of just take over and not fight. Okay. Well, with pride, we elevate ourselves, and it's the opposite of what we're called to do is exactly. Christ. Right, and I think to take that a little farther, because Jeremy's on the right track. Well, let me go ahead with Debbie first. I was going to say that pride blinds the truth. Oh, absolutely. Good point, Debbie. We're blinded to the truth when we're prideful. But because of the fact that it exalts self, like you said, it also causes us to abase others. And it's a sin that doesn't just affect ourselves, it affects everybody else. Our sin. Now, sin always affects others. You've heard it like dropping a stone in a, in a pond and those concentric rings that go out. You know, it affects everything. But pride can not only affect others, it can destroy and damage others. You know, it can be uh, such that... Um, it can destroy others. And that's what makes it so serious, is we can destroy reputations. We can, in exalting ourselves, literally bring great harm to others. Um, and that's, um, that's a real problem. You know, that's a serious issue. Okay, also there are severe consequences to pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Does anybody have that? Okay, go ahead. Pride goes before destruction. Okay, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So pride, and we see that Satan fell, Adam and Eve fell, and that was pride. Satan thinking that he could be like the Most High. You know, remember Lucifer, he was one of God's greatest angels. I mean, he was, um, you know, very revered amongst the angelic beings, and he fell and took a third of the angels with him. And then Adam and Eve, you know, we we understand that, that uh, Eve thought that God wasn't giving her enough, that he was holding back, so she could get more than what God offered. So, yeah, I want that knowledge. I'm going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I want to know this. Pride. James 4, 6. Anybody have that? James 4, 6. Okay, thanks. Okay, that's, that's an encouraging verse, isn't it? Um, he opposes the proud, but notice the antithesis of that. He gives grace to the humble. And, you know, humility, you guys, is not being slovenly weak. It's not being milk toast. It's not groveling. Godly humility is strength under control, okay? It's strength under control. You know, when Jesus said, when, remember when Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, you have no power over me except what was given from above. That's humility. That's strength under control. So humility is not that we are, 
you know, it means that we're in control of ourselves and that we don't retaliate um, in like manner to those in the world that seek harm to us. And, you know, we understand who we are before God. And, um, and you know, that really helps when we have the propensity or we have the urge to condemn somebody, which we all have. I mean, sometimes we really get angry with others and we have a tendency to really want to condemn them. Uh, this is a big thing in marriage. I struggle with this, you know, like, yeah, why are you doing it this way? And, you know, I'm so much smarter, you could do it this way. And, and you know, that's pride. That's just pride, even though I'm right. No. <laughs> I'll deny it if you tell my wife I had this conversation with you. No, I never said that, dear. Yeah, that's it's recorded. Yeah, well. Yeah. I should have turned that part off. She'll never hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's um, it's so easy, isn't it, to slip into a prideful attitude, and um, we have to be careful in that. Also, if we're going to understand how not to be prideful, we need to understand how to be humble because that's what God calls us to do, right? So humility is not thinking higher of yourself than you should think or by viewing yourself uh, in an unbiblical way. You want to view yourself and the Lord through an accurate biblical perspective, so we want to understand who we are in light of who God is. That's the greatest way to stay humble. Um, to realize that we are what we are by the grace of God. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And if anybody had bragging rights, it would be Paul. Because Paul had accolades that just didn't stop. Uh, he could have been the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. You know, He was in the elitist group of Israel. Paul had everything going for him. And when he came to Christ, he said, you know what, I am what I am by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he called himself, what, the chief of sinners. The, you know, the, the, he saw himself as, as a very lowly, and that wasn't false humility. So, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, Romans 12, 3. And some of the principles on humility, then, is that we're to use our gifts and abilities to the glory of God. You know, we realize... Whatever talents we have, we have by the, by the grace of God. Um, you know, it's easy to get prideful over what we can do or what we've attained in life, and we can be very prideful, um, and we can get to start thinking that, you know, we're, um, we're more than what we really are. And, um, you know, pride is rampant in the church in all kinds of ways. And, you know, I always think of this, you know, when it comes to what abilities and talents and, and just the blessings God's given us, you know, I always think, well, if God could make an ass speak, he can do something with me. You know, and that keeps the right perspective on things. Because we are what we are by the grace of God. And, you know, we have no reason to be puffed up about anything. Like, you know, people say, oh, isn't it great to be in pastoral ministry? Sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, I am what I am by the grace of God. That's it. I mean, you know, God could have chosen anyone at any time to do this. And I'm just wanting to exercise my spiritual gift to the best of my ability. Um, you know, use the abilities that God's given me. There are others who are far greater and far more renowned and 
you know, but I'm just thankful that God would even give me this privilege. You know, and, and to do the best I can for him wherever he places me so that I can bring him honor and glory and realize that without him I wouldn't, I'm nothing. I, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that's true for all of us. Um, when you're humble, you're more open to scripture. Debbie, you hit it right on the head here. You know, when we're prideful, we don't see truth. And when we're humble, we tend to have more of a teachable spirit. You know, when we're humble, we want to know the truth. You're going to counsel people that are going to come in like this. Go ahead, prove to me why I should listen to you. That's usually counseling sessions that don't last long with me. You know, um, but humility is, is exhibited by a person who's capable of learning and who really wants to learn. Um, we are to put on a new heart of humility. Colossians 3.12 and by the way, the humble person capable of learning, uh, Psalm 25, 9. Uh, gifts and abilities, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Sorry, I didn't give you the verses for that. And then the more humble we are, the more we please God and we'll be rewarded by him. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. The more we, um, the more we walk in humility, the more we humble him. You know, Jesus came with a humble and gentle spirit. Uh, what an example for us. We're, we're to be like him. We're to walk like him. And that takes discipline. I think it's far harder to be humble than it is to be arrogant. What's, uh, what's the address for Colossians? Uh, it's Colossians uh, 3.12. Sorry. <coughs> and this one, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. And then in Isaiah 57.15, Isaiah says that God dwells with the humble. Uh, the Lord finds it easy to strive with us or a man of humility. And so we see the benefits of this. And then uh, last one, uh, that God gives grace, his undeserved blessing to the humble, James 4, 6. We just read that. Yes. Yeah, The Forgotten Virtue of Humility. Yeah, get that book by Wayne Mack. That is an excellent book. The Forgotten Virtue Humility. Yeah, because we live in a society that's saturated with me, 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 isn't it? Like, you know, I remember years ago when I first saw a, a football player spike a football in the end zone. And it just turned me on. And it does to this day. Because you know what? It doesn't exalt teamwork. It exalts, look what I did. You know, any sports is really a team effort usually. You know, it's a team effort. You know, the only reason you scored a touchdown is because this guy over here blocked for you. And this guy threw a pass that you could catch. And this guy blocked down here so you could run. You know, but, but it's just, and again, this is a silly example, maybe a little trite, but it, it, it's just an example of how our society just is so much focused on self. I'm sorry, Isaiah 57? Yes, Isaiah 57, 15. So, uh, yes. yeah, so these are just a few things um, that you had asked, and so... I realize there's an infinite number of things we could touch on, and I think we're out of time. So we're going to have to close here. Um, but any uh, last questions before we... Uh